Right now on Last Call, the unbreakable consumer, many Americans shrugging off headwind after headwind. How? A trial for the ages. Sam Bankman-Fried facing the music in federal court tomorrow. We have a full preview of what's to come. Come and gone. Why Tesla missing a key deadline for its cyber truck. And that's not all. We'll get more. Fast food is getting faster in certain ways, but probably not for the reason you think. Plus, an eye-watering stat from the football slide heard round the gambling world. And it's Make It Mondays. We're going to meet the entrepreneur rolling up profits with pasta. Pasta and Gucci together. It's real. We'll tell you how. All that and much more on this Monday. So belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. All right, good evening here. Good afternoon at West. Hope you had a great weekend. I am Brian Sullivan. All right, all that coming up. But first up, is the Federal Reserve helping to crush the clean energy revolution and costing investors, maybe you, billions of dollars? It could be, because today was another tough day for many big energy stocks as interest rates remain high and continue to go higher. Look at this. All right, NextEra Energy down 9%. AES down 7%. Quanta, they're the ones that make the power lines. By the way, you need those and SolarEdge down 5%. That was just today. But this is not just a today story. Next Era Energy, the old Florida power and light, is the biggest renewable power generator in America. And it has now lost investors one-fourth of the company's value in one week. One week, stock down 25%. Next Era is a $100 billion company that is down nearly 40% this year. That is a massive move for one of the biggest and arguably most important energy stocks in America, if not the world. It is a company, by the way, that is growing its earnings, and it is also growing its power output. And that is not all. Look at this. This is a subsidiary of NextEra. It's called NextEra Energy Partners, ticker NEP. NEP has lost nearly half of its value in just one week. Now, the company did scale back some guidance recently, but a scaled back guidance? Does that merit this kind of selling? I mean, this kind of selling? Okay, maybe you can decide the market doesn't care about what's deserved, right? So why are we talking about higher rates and the Fed along with energy? It's very simple. Many of these new energy products require massive capital investments up front. In other words, they cost a lot of money. Much of that money is borrowed money. So as borrowing costs soar as the Fed raises rates, many of these big projects like offshore or onshore wind or solar farm can become either uneconomic or have their profitability cut and investors maybe back away. And no doubt, higher rates are slamming this sector. I want to show you this. This is why we're standing here at the old Telestrator tonight. Okay, the yellow line, this line here, that is the yield on the 10-year bond, okay? And you can see, I mean, unless you literally just came off of Mars like Matt Damon or something, you know that rates have been going up. The white line is the TAN ETF. It is the biggest renewable energy ETF. It's filled with wind and solar and battery companies. Got a snazzy ticker TAN. And look what's happened to the TAN. And by the way, this is one year. So this is right around August. 
rates started to spike. They've been going up, but rates really started to spike. And these stocks and the TAN ETF have fallen 32%, while interest rates have gone up 23%. It is a nearly perfect inverse correlation. All right, so what do we make of it? Well, here's the hot take. All right, here's the hot take. You can agree or disagree. I'd love to hear from you. D.C. spending, we know, both parties, by the way, help cause inflation. D.C. is spending more on trying to pick winners in energy. They want to promote wind and solar. Fine. But at the same time, the Federal Reserve is raising rates to counter inflation. And those higher rates are hurting some of the very same companies that the federal government is giving billions of your tax dollars to in subsidies. A little more clearly, one hand of the government giveth, while the other hand apparently taketh away. Spending, taking away, all because of rates. All right, let's talk more about this and where it goes. I'm bringing former chair of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, Neil Chatterjee. Uh, Commissioner Chatterjee, I know you do work for renewables companies as well. This is not knocking the sector, but it's about what's happening, and investors are wondering why. What is the correlation between the higher cost of money and renewable projects? Yeah, look, so you nailed it. Um, these high interest rates in this environment are really having an impact on demand, and they've changed demand, which was surging in 2020 and 2021, and you saw a lot of enthusiasm and excitement for these technologies, and some of that has been tempered by the fact that with high rates, the costs of installing some of these projects, where you noted, have high upfront uh, investment required, um, has skyrocketed, and that has caused an caused a shift in consumer demand. And you said it exactly. This is one of the challenges with government interfering with energy policy decisions instead of the market. Government's trying to pick winners and losers, and then they've got conflicting policies that are disrupting things. It's not just high interest rates. You had the commerce department investigating, you know, whether in fact uh, there was uh, dumping going on and, and uh, impacting the importation of Asian panels. There's a lot of conflicting policies at play here, and that's having an impact on consumers and yeah. on investors. But Neil, and Neil, you understand my broader point. And again, we're you and I have talked about it. And I'll be clear, we are an all-in energy country. We need it all. We're growing data centers. We want to grow AI. That's going to take a lot of power. Wind, solar, hydro, nuclear, hamsters and wheels. I don't care what it is. We're going to need it. And we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars in taxpayer-funded subsidies to do it, while at the same time, I feel like the Federal Reserve, and they're not going after the energy sector, I get it, but the Fed's policies to counter some of the government-led inflation is kneecapping the industry. It seems horribly counterproductive. Totally. And, and the tragedy of it is the business case for clean energy is really improving. You're seeing costs come down uh, outside of the subsidies, and you're seeing consumer interest go up. Now, demand has been impacted by higher interest rates, but generally consumers from Fortune 50 companies to uh, small uh, businesses, mom and pops, to individual households are clamoring for clean energy as America's become more aware of their sources of energy. And so this should be a really exciting time. It is, it is. It is. It, Neil, it, 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 it is. And but, but to my point about demand, 
Here's my concern. If we don't get the new solar revolution or the new wind revolution, and it takes 20 years to build a nuclear plant, but at the same time, we're removing what they call baseload power. Baseload power basically means always on. A nuclear plant, gas plant, something you can sort of always rely on if certain things don't happen. We're taking a lot of that type, coal, gas, whatever, offline, which is fine. You could hate those, but they're going offline. But if we don't get the new power because the Fed is raising rates and investors or companies are backing away, to me, that sounds like we could have major energy shortages. Something, by the way, the grid operator for the Mid-Atlantic region where both you and I are right now warned about in a report about three months ago. That's scary stuff. Look, I've been warning about this for some time. The fact that decisions about resource adequacy, what you're describing is, do we have enough capacity to meet demand so that we can keep the lights on? More and more, those decisions are being made by politicians and not by engineers. We need to repower engineers decide when these resources should be on, when they're balancing resources aren't ready to go. Get the politicians out of it and re-engage the engineers. Yeah. A lot of politicians, by the way, who don't have any energy or engineering experience that I can tell. It's a scary situation and it's a very real one when it comes to things that we take for granted, like turning the heat and the light on. Neil Chatterjee, formerly of FERC. We appreciate it, Neil. Sober view. Thank you very much. All right. A lot more on that story, folks. In the meantime, here's what happened to your money today. A mixed start to the fourth quarter. Hey, welcome to the fourth quarter, by the way. Even after Congress avoided a government shutdown, the Dow still fell down 74 points. NASDAQ and S&P rose a little bit. All right, let's check out the stud and the dud of the day if we can. We just talked about the dud. That was Next Area Energy, the worst in the S&P 500. The best was actually Discover Financial, which is up just about 5%. Comes out to the bank agreed on some regulatory changes. They've been under scrutiny. They made some changes. Stock's up 5%. All right. Well, our power here on Last Call is always on and coming up. From higher rates to the return of student loan debt payments, more American consumers facing headwinds. So why are so many still spending like there's no tomorrow? Plus, the trial of the decade kicking off tomorrow. FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried's billion-dollar alleged fraud. How are his victims preparing? We'll talk about it coming up. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Is the great American run of consumer spending about to hit a major headwind? After years of being wrong about it, a lot of people, including us, have been wrong. Spending bears may finally have a point. Student loan payments now resuming. Borrowing costs keep going up. Mortgage rates above 7%. Groceries, food prices remain ridiculous. Gasoline prices up again. And electricity costs keep rising in most of America. But other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? Even hedge fund legend Bill Ackman sees trouble ahead. This is what he had to say earlier. I think the economy is starting to slow. Uh, I think the level of real interest rates is high enough to slow things down. You know, high mortgage rates, high car rates, high credit card rates. They're starting to really have, you know, an impact on the economy. But let's be clear and fair. Those things have been true for a while. And all the while... We just keep spending as a nation, splurging on concerts, travel, food and clothes. I mean, hey, after COVID, can you really blame people for living for today? I can't. But most good things eventually do come to an end. And with credit card balances soaring, 
What is next for the consumer and maybe the overall markets? All right, pleased tonight to welcome in Charles Schwab, Chief Investment Strategist, Lizanne Saunders, and Barron, Senior Economics Writer, Megan Casella. Megan, Lizanne, thanks very much. Lizanne, you do a lot of great work on this. You post a lot of charts and stats. And some of the things that we talk about is, and you've said this, don't be monolithic. It's a big word, by the way, in your approach, right? That there's different groups like the boomers who are spending a lot while the whilst lower income are starting to get pinched. Does this eventually hit the economy? I think it probably does. And I, I think providing some maybe clarity or color on why consumption has hung in there more than one might think, even recently with some of the headwinds that you have talked about, um, came out via the BEA's comprehensive revisions to GDP, et cetera, data, and included an upward revision to excess savings through August of $350 billion. So I think that may help to explain the resilience, not to mention a still relatively resilient labor market, it's slowing. But now I think we're, we're at rubber meets the road, not to mention, Brian, as you said, down the income spectrum, if you go into, you know, quartiles or quintiles, that's where you see more of a tapped out uh, consumer and credit card usage going up. So I think we need to start to look at the hits or for the hits specific to various cohorts as opposed to just the consumer broadly. Yeah, very different, not only in terms of age, demographics, but also geographics. I would imagine as well. Megan, talk to us about this. You recently had a piece about sort of the confounding strength of the job market. And I think I think the job market is strong. A lot of people got raises. And I'll be clear, I'll, I'll admit it. I underestimated dramatically, apparently, the amount of consumer savings that people added up during during the lockdowns and the pandemic. You're not alone in that, Brian. I think most economists felt the same way. And that's why we've kept seeing these recession calls that a downturn was going to come sooner than we expected, or at least before now. And of course, we're not there yet. The labor market is still really strong. And I think, yes, it's slowing, but it's more of a return to normal. And I think we have to recognize that as long as most people are working and getting a paycheck, they're going to keep spending. And as for those savings, they really piled up. The Fed had some new data out, I think it was last week, looking at the bottom half of all consumers, and they their wealth soared by 75% between just before the pandemic hurt, hit and today, or the most recent quarter. And so what that tells you is that, yes, savings might be down. Yes, credit card balances might be up. But by and large, consumers are continuing to do quite well, even in that crucial lower half of the income sector, where they're spending more of their money, a greater share of their money. And those are really important to keeping the gears running. We're not seeing that spending slow just yet. Because, Lizanne, it's all about the debt service level, right? It's not about the amount of debt that you may have, but the amount of percentage of your income that is going to that. And that is actually lower compared to a number of other periods in recent memory. But I guess I guess I'm still scarred from 2007. I'm not saying this is 08 and 07. But given housing's role in that and seeing what's happening in housing now, is it okay for investors to be a little jittery? Well, so I I think there's um, very little that is comparable between the 2006 housing bubble period and now. First of all, a lot of um, mortgage owners have kind of termed out their mortgages. They've gone to fixed rate mortgages, which is a much larger share relative to 2005, 2006, when 
you know, everything was armed and dangerous in terms of what the lending practices had been and what percent was variable uh, mortgages. So when the interest rate cycle kicked in in 2006, it immediately hit uh, those variable rate mortgages. That's not the case this time. In fact, if you look at the average effective mortgage rate, which uh, takes into consideration what people have locked in, it's actually about half of what the stated mm -hmm. mortgage rate is. Not to mention corp many corporations uh, termed out and moved um, out the maturity spectrum into fixed rate type of debt. I think it just lessens the the interest rate yeah. sensitivity within the economy, certainly versus a period like 06. So how, how do you, and Lizanne, one more to you, and then I'll go back to Megan. How do you look at, you and your team look at consumer stocks? I'm not, again, I don't, you're not here to pick stocks. I'm not going to throw one company under the bus. But when we look at a name like a Target at three-year lows with a, quote, strong consumer and some other restaurants and retailers, they seem to be telling a different story. Well, as you know, Brian, I don't do anything at the individual uh, stock level, but but we, there are times where we actually are a bit more sector focused. Where, to, to use the term we used before, you can you can take a more monolithic approach when dispersion is uh, fairly low and you've got a lot of different, you know, certain types of companies moving in lockstep. I think this needs to be a more factor-oriented mm -hmm. kind of investing environment. And the factors we've been emphasizing, which another word for characteristics, would be relative to the macro environment. And this ties into consumer companies. So strong balance sheet, interest coverage, the ability to, to you know, fund interest on and debt out of cash flows in a constrained earnings environment, positive earnings revision, positive earnings surprise, and get to opportunities sort of from the bottom up at a factor level, as opposed to just making a blanket, you know, like consumer companies mm -hmm. or don't like consumer companies. You know, Megan, I was at O'Hare five o'clock last Monday night and I've seen O'Hare crowded. I've never seen it this crowded. Every flight is oversold, sold out. Most restaurants still, all, by the way, not just in New York, all of, I travel constantly all over the country. Do you see any signs of a quote return to normal? And I'm not using that in the, in the COVID way. What normal is anymore, right? You're absolutely right. I've been traveling this summer. O'Hare is packed. Denver Airport has been packed. DC airports as well. There really isn't that slowdown. I think one reason is that wealth cushion that I mentioned before. I think there's also a psychological difference here too. People realize that you know they they had a long time where they couldn't take these trips. Maybe it's time to do it now. Are they looking for deals? They recognize that deals might not be out there anymore. So they realize maybe we should just go ahead and book it now if prices are going to keep going up. That's the kind of thing that Fed is scared of. But I think what we what we have right now is a really bullish and confident consumer. That, of course, could change. We don't know when the hit's going to come. But as long as they keep working, even as they spend down those savings, they can drive up credit card yeah. debt a little bit. But, you know, it's the concert tickets. It's the handbags. It's the it's the flights. And that's it's not just Taylor Swift, but that's like a quarter of it, I think. Megan Casella, Lizanne Saunders, thank you. Good discussion. Taking the bullish side, really, of the, of the consumer argument. All right, still ahead. Sam Bankman-Fried's blockbuster fraud trial kicking off tomorrow. Is his path to not guilty as bleak as it may appear? All right, it is time now for tomorrow's news tonight. And the blockbuster trial of FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried begins tomorrow. He is facing seven criminal charges related to the collapse of the crypto exchange. Kate Rooney has been covering the story from the beginning and joins us now with how this next 
chapter begins. Kate. Hi, Brian. So tomorrow is Sam Bankman-Fried's first day in court. The trial will decide whether or not his crypto blow-up was fraud or just failed risk management. Jury selection begins in the morning. Bankman-Fried faces seven counts of fraud and conspiracy. He's been in custody since August and has pleaded not guilty. Four of his top lieutenants, though, have pleaded guilty, and we do expect some to testify. In the meantime, FTX customers have not gotten their money back. We spoke to some for our new CNBC documentary and asked them to share their message to Sam Bankman-Fried ahead of his trial. What's my message to Sam Bankman-Fried if I could talk to him now? I don't know if it would get through to him, but I believe the worst thing he has done is the suffering he has caused to millions of victims worldwide. I would sell Sam. I mean, it's great that at least you're saying in the media that you want to make sure all the customers are right. I guess do the right thing then. I mean, serve your time, pay your penalties, and do the best you can for your users. My biggest advice to him is figure out what you can do to help all those people who lost their life savings in FTX. I don't know how you're gonna do it or what you're gonna do, get it done. If I had a chance to confront Sam face to face, I would just honestly be curious to know like what he was actually trying to do. Like, were you trying to do good or were you just a, you know, really bad person and promoted yourself really well in order to swindle a bunch of people? Like, just give me an honest answer. More from those customers and other FTX insiders and investors in this documentary. It's live on CNBC.com. You can scan that QR code. Go to CNBC.com slash FTX. Brian, back over to you. We have a timeline, Kate. And, and uh, how long are you going to be holed up at the courthouse? <laughs> Six weeks is what they're looking for. Jerry selection tomorrow. We should hopefully start getting testimony this week. But I'm told it will move pretty quickly after they select a jury. You've got opening statements and then you're going to start to hear from some of those top executives I mentioned, like Caroline Ellison, which will be the one people really are looking for. That's his former girlfriend and CEO of the sister company, Alameda. Yeah, I saw like a short clip of her uh, doing like a podcast where she was joking about not using hedges in her investment strategy. It was not, not exactly like a, a Harvard Business School theory, I suppose. That aside, are we expecting Caroline Ellison to throw one Bankman Freed under said bus. So she, in a lot of ways, has already done that. She said that she knowingly committed fraud and that Sam Bankman-Fried was a part of it. And she has pleaded guilty and is cooperating with the prosecution. So she is seen as a big obstacle to Sam Bankman-Fried's defense, as well as other top lieutenants. You have um, other FTX executives who are also set to testify against Sam Bankman-Fried. So a lot of evidence stacked there. Um, against him and uh, insiders. Really, he had a small sort of insular group of people. Not that many people outside of that Bahamas group necessarily knew what was going on, and at least according to people we spoke to in the documentary who were in some cases running the U.S. business who said they had no idea what was happening. The ones that really would have known are actually going to take the stand. So it'll be fascinating, Brian. It should be an amazing trial. We're glad you're there. Kate Rooney, thank you. Good to see you. Thanks. All right. Up next, the UAW strike fallout spreading with a rather surprise announcement from Ford. Plus, yet another deadline for the Tesla Cybertruck comes and goes. We'll talk about it with Sawyer Merritt next. All right. Welcome back to Last Call. There is a lot full, get it, of auto-related headlines today from Rivian to Tesla to some interesting Ford news. But let's start on the ongoing UAW strike, now entering its third full work week. 
And Ford is now laying off some workers in response to the strike. Phil LeBeau joining us now with more. Phil. And Brian, I'll give you one new nugget that just came out, not Ford related. We'll talk Ford in just a second. General Motors has said within the last hour that it has received a formal counter offer from the UAW. They are assessing it. No other comment about the details except to say there are still gaps. So there you go. The discussions continue. As for Ford, the company announcing late this afternoon that it will be laying off approximately 330 workers. Why? In part because these folks are going out on strike at the Ford plant on the south side of Chicago. That means that Ford parts from a stamping facility in Illinois, as well as an engine plant in Ohio, are not needed at this facility because the people are out on strike. They're not building Ford Explorers. And as a result, they are laying off those folks. Ford now has laid off approximately 930 workers since the strike started. And a reminder, as you take a look at shares of Ford, there are two final assembly plants for Ford that are currently shut down because of these strikes. That brings to about 22% of Ford's U.S. production that has essentially been shut down. Another piece of auto news today, Rivian, the electric vehicle company that is based in central Illinois, or its plant main plant is in central Illinois, announcing its Q3 deliveries, and they came in better than expected. Rivian delivering over 15,000 vehicles, and as a result, they are optimistic that we they will hit their guidance for full year deliveries, as well, production of 52,000 vehicles. That's where their guidance is at. They believe that they will hit that. Brian, tomorrow morning we have a Squawk Box exclusive. You do not want to miss our discussion with Rivian founder and CEO R.J. Scaringe. We will be on the line that builds the R1T and the R1S, and we'll talk to him about where the company is as it heads into the fourth quarter and a very important 2024 as they move towards their next-generation R2 vehicles. Yeah, and we were, we were talking, uh, and I posted, it was a journal story about losses. You said that we've known the losses per vehicle. I would imagine you're going to talk to R.J. Yeah. about how do you, do you do you raise the price? Do you lower your costs or some combination of the two so they can make money on what they're selling? No, it's more lowering the cost, Brian. And they knew this. And this, you know, the 33,000 headline, I had a few people text me today and say, oh, my God, they're losing 33,000. I said, yes, that that came out in the earnings report last quarter. That is not new news. Uh, what is significant is that Rivian is working to lower those costs. Now, that's the question. Do they get to the point where they believe they will by the end of next year, where they are profitable per vehicle, they've got a big, you know, a long ways to go in that regard. But big part of that is lowering costs while increasing production. I, I, I was one of those people who did not know that it was not new news, but uh, but thank we now we do know that it's not new, but a big yeah. topic. Phil will look forward to your interview tomorrow. I still think the R1S one of the best looking vehicles out there, electric or not. Phil, thank you. All right, so there's still more going on in the auto world. Here's what else is happening or maybe not happening right now. Number one, Tesla sales, they're booming, but maybe not booming quite enough. Now, the company did deliver 435,059 cars in the third quarter, but that was a little less than the second quarter. But it may not be a demand issue because Tesla blaming the slide on pre-planned factory upgrades. So cars simply couldn't be made as quickly. Elon Musk warning a slowdown was coming in the previous quarter, so that also should not be, to Phil's point, new news. But this may be. Tesla's big Cybertruck delivery event, still MIA. Despite Musk teasing the big day would happen in this third quarter, the third quarter, the third quarter now has come and gone. And rounding out the auto news, 
not involving Tesla, we have confirmed some reports that Ford dealers are having trouble or getting orders canceled for the electric F-150 Lightning. We have heard from some dealers that demand for the truck simply not there. But I also spoke personally with Ford reps today who told me that some of the pulled orders are so dealers can receive the newer 2024 version rather than this year's model year. The 24 Lightning EV has some new tweaks along with a flash edition of the truck. The Detroit Free Press, though, also reporting and some Lightnings may be undergoing what they call quality checks. Bottom line, there is a lot going on on the auto lot these days. So for more on this Ford story, let's bring in Tom Maoli. He is the owner of Celebrity Motor Cars. His group is based in New Jersey and New York. They operate dealerships, including Ford, as well as Lexus, BMW, Maserati, Alfa Romeo, Mercedes-Benz, and more. Tom, great to have you back on the show. Brian, how you doing? No, I'm, I'm well, thank you. I spoke with Ford personally myself today on the, not, not, not like the Ford guy, but like somebody yes. at Ford. <laughs> and, you know, Bill Clay, what's going on? And uh, yes. he basically said this, this is an overblown story that it's 2024 models are being swapped out so your Ford customers for Lightnings can get the 24, not the 23. Well, listen, it's definitely an overblown story. And the reality of it is, is that, you know, we are coming to a model year change. But, you know, listen, the demand for electric cars is not there. You know, the the implementation is not there. You know, we have the Biden administration that continues to push this agenda and the consumer is not buying into it. And, you know, look at look at Tesla's numbers. Tesla's numbers are, are while they're growing, they're dropping. And, you know, everybody looks at the percentages of increase that these car companies like Rivian and Tesla are posting. You know, Tesla is less than 4% of, of the entire market share of the U.S. car market. And if you look at Rivian, we're talking about less than 1%. So, yeah, you know, the, the numbers look staggering when you look at the increases, but the amount of cars that are being pushed out there is really not great. And then you have to take into consideration a lot of these cars are getting shipped overseas. China, you know, Japan, you know, uh, so those markets are growing rapidly. The U.S. is struggling in in, in the electric car market and it's hitting a, a brick wall. You know, they cannot say these car companies like Rivian, Tesla and even, you know, the majors like Ford, Chrysler, Lexus, BMW, Toyota. They cannot sustain the losses that they're, they're experiencing in this electric car blunder. Well, Toyota and Honda probably can. We'll see where it goes. But, Tom, OK, your, yes. your Ford dealership is in an area of the market with a high EV penetration. New York, yes. New Jersey, there's a lot of Teslas. There's some Rivians floating around. One of my neighbors got a Lucid Air. You, you see them out there, okay? Correct. So talk to us about what you're, just you, what you are experiencing at your Ford dealership. Are people coming in, they're curious, right? They wanna they're, know, what do they do? Are they looking at it? Are they test driving? Are they asking a lot of questions? Are they buying the Lightning? Or are they settling on a normal F-150 or maybe the hybrid version, which is what a good friend of mine did? Yeah, you know, listen, they're going for the gas and the hybrid and, you know, they're not buying the electric. They're coming in, they're kicking the tires. Everybody's curious about it. But at the end of the day, they're not buying the electric. You know, Tesla's Tesla's uh, uh, market share is not growing as fast as it was growing, you know, and people want an electric car. There's something about a Tesla. They were the first to market. It's like an Apple iPhone. The rest of the manufacturers out there are struggling. Toyota, uh, Maserati's coming out with an electric car. Um, Ford, the Lightning. I mean, the the the, the range that 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 these batteries go um, are, are an issue, and the amount of charging stations that are out there and the infrastructure do not but, are, are just not in place today. But it's going it's going to get better, Tom. That's the point. We're spending hundreds of billions of dollars to make it better. But. 
Well, listen, we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars, but we have years to upgrade the infrastructure and and get these chargers out there. You know, our own Secretary of Transportation of the United States of America took a ride across the country in an electric vehicle, and she said it was the worst experience she ever had. She pulled up to a charging station. Two of the char- of the three charging stations didn't work. There yeah. was an, a, a gasoline car parked in the one station that she called the sheriff's officer to get out. There was no laws against about them not being able to park there. You know, there, there were other people waiting in line yeah. to get their car charged. It's, it, it, it doesn't really work, and, and it's going to take a long time to build this infrastructure out. And that's what people are... Yeah, well, Tom, we got to leave it there. But but again, keep us informed of what's going on in your dealership with regards to it, because it all comes down to what happens on the ground with the men and women that work at your Ford dealership. Tom, appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you. All right, so for more on what's going on with Tesla, is Tesla investor and Tesla reporter on X, formerly known as Twitter. Sawyer Merritt does some great work, by the way, on X, breaking a lot of new news and that has earned him a considerable following, including myself. And I've learned a lot from you, Sawyer, and I appreciate you, you coming on. Uh, let's, let's talk about, Thank first you. off, the, the cyber truck, okay? Because we've been waiting for, it's like waiting for Godot, waiting for Guffman, whatever. We've been waiting on this thing for a long time. Do you have any clues as to when we may finally see a cyber truck on the road? You know, the Cybertruck is a revolutionary product, sort of unlike anything else, you know, and as, and as a result, it's a difficult product to build. But I think Q4 will finally be the quarter that we see some deliveries. And, you know, I think the, the unique design is such a good adver- rolling advertisement that Tesla hasn't even bothered to put any logos or badges on the exterior. And I think from a competitive advantage standpoint, you know, I think the Tesla Cybertruck will have a lot of American parts content. Cars.com rates Tesla has having the four most American-made cars in the U.S., and that doesn't just include EVs. And the Cybertruck will be built in Texas and will probably be more American-made than any of its yeah. rivals. And so isn't, I think that'll isn't be a huge that the, Isn't that, that kind of the weird irony, Sawyer? Not to dip into the ugly world of politics, but Musk is, is not loved by a lot of people on the political side, and yet his cars, because of their cost and because of where they're built— Maybe some of the most, if not at the end of the day, the only EVs eligible for some of these credits. I mean, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. No, it's true. And Tesla goes out of their way to really localize a lot of their production, not only in, of course, their Chinese uh, manufacturing areas, but also in the U.S. You know, and I think Elon has every right to express his views and opinions. And even if I don't agree agree with some of them, that's fine. And, you know, I think people shouldn't try to prevent him from trying to, you know, being himself. I think X is an outlet for him. And as a Tesla investor, you know, I accept that. And I, I think Elon genuinely cares about, you know, the people and making a positive impact in people's lives. And I think, you know, a lot of the times people, people discount a lot of the great things that he's doing. I literally know people in New Jersey, Sawyer, who've said, I was going to buy a Tesla, but I, but I won't because I don't like Elon Musk, which I just, I find odd. But, but that's everybody's, by the way, that's everybody's decision. I think people should, should be able to pick whatever car or truck they choose. Tesla's numbers, it came down a little bit because those production delays, it seems like it's more of a supply issue than a demand issue, no? Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. You know, I think the, the delivery production report today, I think really should just be, it was already baked into the stock, I think, and it really shouldn't be viewed as a miss. And as you said, you know, Tesla reiterated on their Q2 earnings report, or live earnings call rather, that there would be some factory shutdowns for upgrades. And, you know, this shouldn't be interpreted negatively or as a sign of weak demands. And they reiterated today their 1.8 million uh, volume delivery target for 2023. And the company is really set up for a strong Q4 and 2024 Mm -hmm. heading into next year with the Cybertruck delivery starting 
the refresh Model 3, and they just actually announced uh, an updated Model Y in from the Shanghai factory. There you go. A lot of Tesla news. Wouldn't be a day without Tesla news. Sawyer Merritt, glad to have you on last call. I uh, hope it's not the last time. Please, welcome back anytime. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you. it, Brian. All right. No, my, our pleasure. All right. Coming up, breaking developments out of the nation's capital on the showdown between Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Congressman Matt Gates. Give you the breaking news right after this. Tonight's RBI is sports-related. It's about football, tackle football, because Taylor Swift continues to make the NFL must-watch TV. Check this out. NBC says nearly 27 million of you tuned in to watch last night's Chiefs-Jets game, and that, my friends, makes it the most-watched Sunday night football game since this year's Super Bowl. But the real RBI is about a bad beat, because the New York Jets were not the only losers last night. With two minutes left to go in the game, Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes slid short of the end zone instead of taking the easy touchdown. He was trying to burn the clock, and he did. But he also burned many betters because if Mahomes just walked into the end zone, the Chiefs would have been up by nine and likely covered the betting spread. Now, you probably could hear the collective screams of millions of gamblers when Mahomes went down because ESPN says about 80 million was bet on the game with about 80 to 90 percent of the bets on the Chiefs. So you do the math, Vegas and the sportsbooks might have banked at least 60 to 70 million dollars thanks to the Mahomes slide. One bookmaker told the USA Today the slide was the single biggest individual playing decision he has seen in three years. Now, of course, no guarantee Chiefs backers would have won their bets if Mahomes has scored. There was some time on the clock the Jets could have scored a last-minute touchdown. I could become 22 tomorrow. But for many football bettors, seeing Mahomes pass on a wide-open TV, a tough betting pill to the right play, but not for bettors. Call that random, but painful. All right. Meantime, we got much more serious breaking news out of Capitol Hill and the face-off between Kevin McCarthy and Matt Gates. Emily Wilkins has that in D.C. Emily. Brian, well, just a little bit ago, Congressman Matt Gates made good on his promise to begin to move to oust Speaker Kevin McCarthy and strip him of his leadership role. Now, no vote was held tonight. Congress has about the next two days to set that up and actually take that vote. And McCarthy does have a lot of support from most Republican members. But Gates says that he has the Republican votes needed to bring forward this motion and really challenge McCarthy. He told reporters tonight that at this point next week, one of two things will happen. Either Kevin McCarthy won't be Speaker of the House or he'll be the Speaker of the House working at the pleasure of Democrats. McCarthy also had a message in response to that that he tweeted out tonight. Bring it on. Now, a big question that remains is what House Democrats decide to do. Right now, House Minority Leader Judge Hakeem Jeffries, he could ask for a lot of things. He's hinted that he wants to see a vote on Ukraine aid, but he could also ask for much bigger structural changes in how the House is run. Another big question, if not McCarthy, then who? You did hear Matt Gates float a name tonight, Steve Scalise. He is McCarthy's number two right now, someone who's pretty widely respected across the Republican conference, but Scalise has often said that he doesn't want to challenge McCarthy. But really, at this point, we are in uncharted territory, and it's just not clear how the next week's going to be playing out. Brian? Well, we don't know, but we know it's going to be busy. Emily Wilkins, thank you very much. The gift that keeps on giving. All right, coming up, 
our most filling edition yet of Make It Mondays. We're going to meet the entrepreneur who's got a pasta business so hot that even Gucci is involved. All right, time for Make It Mondays. And tonight, we meet Fiona Afshar, the creator of Fiona's Pasta. She designs uniquely patterned pasta noodles from her home in California. If you look at every culture closely, there's always a form of pasta. It just like leaves a really warm feeling. My name is Fiona Afshar. I'm 57 years young, and I live in Malibu, California. I always loved working with dough, bread dough, pastry, whatever. But finding the world of pasta was just like, whoa, for me. As soon as I started posting pasta, the whole social media went viral. And I'm like, oh my gosh, people really like pasta and they want it more. This is my big pasta machine, which I do a lot of my work on. The pasta design and shapes that I make are very unique. I really don't know until I have the pasta sheet laid out, and then I come up with design. That's where the creative part is. Everybody started reaching out. All of a sudden, you know, I had Anthropology, Gucci, different textile brands reaching out, can you bring our you know, pattern onto pasta sheet? I'm like, yeah, I can. My younger brother, one day he came, he goes, you have to open a shop, you have to sell your pasta. As soon as he opened shop for me, he's like, ding, 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 sales started coming in. I'm like, are you kidding me? People are actually paying a hundred bucks for pasta. It just has so much potential to grow so big. But in a way, I'm holding it as a baby. I'm not letting it go because it's so dear to me, so personal. It's, it's my art. It's my passion. I don't want to take it somewhere in a manufacturer, mass produce it. I'm not old. I'm not tired, I'm going strong, and I'm having fun with it. So Fiona Afshar joins us now. Fiona, thanks for joining us. Congrats. Have you had second thoughts about maybe opening up that shop? <laughs> Thank you for having me on this show. Um, no, I haven't. It's all about the journey, not the destination for me as of now. I'm having so much fun creating these gorgeous designs. <laughs> and the boxes are so personal and there are so, you know, there's such a magic behind it and authenticity that I don't want to lose you know, mass producing it. <laughs> I tried to make pasta once that ended in tears for everybody involved. Making pasta is really hard. What's it like to add in the colors and the designs? And where do you get, the, where do you get the colors? So these, these are natural colors, I assume, Fiona. Yes, everything's made. We're all about sneaking in the healthy, you know, little parsley, the garlic, you know, the beet. So everything's made, you know, depending on the season, the colors, every season brings a different color. So the green comes from parsley, from kale, from spinach. The red comes from beet. So I bring in, without changing the flavor of the pasta that we have already. So this is where the colors come in. Um, we, showed the, it was, I, we showed just some colors there, and I'm thinking the colors match our show, light blue and gold. 
Maybe we need a little yeah, last, I, call, I last call linguine, Fiona. What would it take to get you? How do you decide what to make? You know, it's all about being creative. And um, I, I, I just make it, I get a lot of inspirations, actually, from different artists and a lot of it from clothing, actually, from textile. So when designers reach out to me and they say, hey, bring a fall pattern onto pasta, I'm like, whoa, yes. I love challenges. I love doing it. I've done collaboration with Gucci, the movie House of Gucci, you know, Farm Rio. I bring their their fall colors into mm -hmm. pasta pattern. I've made pasta necklaces. So a lot of fun projects, yes. Pa Bringing pasta, into pasta, you say pasta necklace? Yes, pasta necklace. Uh huh. How long would that last? You know, they use it. They use it for photo shoots, basically. That's what they do. Mm -hmm. I it's remember a I had a candy necklace as a kid, but that lasted about thirty seconds. So I'm assuming this might last. There you go. There you go. Fiona. Fiona mm -hmm. Afshar, lo love your spirit out there in California. As you said, fifty-seven years young, never too late yeah. to start a new journey. Never Absolutely. Love what you do. Love what you do. And then the rest will come to you. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's how could we can't end the show without a better message than that. Fiona Afshar. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. We should just listen to Fiona. Do what you love. We love this. So we'll see you tomorrow night. Shark Tank is next.